0: Hello, and welcome from the Renaissance Baptist Church of Brooklyn. Join us this week as Pastor John continues his summer sermon series on the parables. What does that mean? Um, That doesn't mean it's a bad hymn. That means it's a great teaching opportunity. Because you can try to explain to them, you know, that guy that's writing that hymn, he's talking about, you know, exalting God above all things. So he just kind of throws out the most glorious, beautiful thing he could imagine, this this glorious, shining, bright angel, and say, even them, just fall on your face in worship of God, and uh, unpack that for your kids. And what's a diadem anyway, Mom? Um, bring forth the royal diadem. That's a crown. Like the, you know, we, when we make crowns for kings, we we they're intricate. They they're filled with all kinds of meaning and craftsmanship and what they represent of the sovereign power of a nation. And only one person gets to wear the crown. There's not a lot of crown committees. It's not a lot of nations where five or six people wear the crown at the same time. There's always only one person that gets to wear the crown. And so we're just kind of saying, bring forth the crown of the whole world and put that on God's head. So think about the words that you're singing. Make sure you help your children understand them. It's also a way for them to grow even in their appreciation for beautiful language You know, there's songs like Jesus is just all right with me, and that might be cool, but it doesn't really teach a whole lot. And uh, some of these hymns you really have to dig down. So maybe we'll just call it Prostrate Awareness Sunday or something like that. But that's another sermon. All right, true story, true story. Are you aware that just last June in the GTA... Someone bought a lottery ticket in Scarborough. Have you been following this news story? And somebody in Scarborough bought a lottery ticket last June worth a jackpot of over $70 million, and it hasn't been claimed. And I didn't know this about lottery tickets because I've never won $70 million. Otherwise, I would know this. But you only have 365 days to pick that up, and then that ticket is null and void. I don't know where the $70 million goes to, but it doesn't go to the person that spent the $6 and bought that lottery ticket. So think about that story. The theory out there is some regular Joe that buys lottery tickets all the time, you know, had that in his wallet, maybe he lost his wallet, maybe he just misplaced it and doesn't even remember that he bought a lottery ticket. And and so there's this $70 million uh, sitting out there. Now imagine you did know that on that particular week last June, you did buy a lottery ticket, but just don't know where you left it. Imagine that. Now, uh, how hard would you try and find that ticket? What would your stress level be like as you're trying to find that ticket? What would you do once you found that ticket? You know, you might have a list in your wallet already or at least a list in your head of the four things that you know you would do if you won something like that. I have a feeling that you would feel an incredible amount of relief. Then that would quickly tumble into an incredible, crazy amount of joy. Then it would move on to celebration. You'd probably tell somebody the story It might be awkward telling your pastor, if you're worried that he might judge you for gambling, maybe tell him before you decide you're going to tithe it and see what he thinks then. Anyway, I'm not going to preach on the ethics of lotteries, but I'm going to talk about the experience of joy when important things are found. How that joy should be ours, but often it's not. We read this in Luke chapter 15. Last week was an entire sermon just getting us ready for this great chapter. We read this in Luke chapter 15. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. Now, we spent the whole sermon last week kind of establishing that this little introduction to these three famous stories that are so familiar to us, this introduction is super important for understanding the lesson that Jesus intends for us to learn in the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons. Um, The exact, uh, in this lesson that he's going to teach isn't suddenly a diversion, like, You know, suddenly I went off on a diversion this morning talking about hymns, and it had nothing to do with our message. This isn't a diversion in Luke. In fact, all the way back to Luke chapter 4, there's the famous story of his temptations, and we find out what Satan's going to be up to for the rest of Jesus' public ministry. And then there's Jesus and this really hard, hot reaction of anger from people in his hometown synagogue, toward his claim that he's announcing that Jubilee is on and the path, the door is wide open for all people to come to God. So, so this reaction that we just read about in these th- two verses, this is all through Jesus' public ministry. This isn't something new. Um, it, the parables, if these parables are about a reaction to the grace of God toward the sinner, how is God's grace pictured? I'm going to read all three of them now, and then I'm going to work my way back. This will be the last time I read through all the details, so follow along, and then keep your Bible open, and we'll see if Cindy can keep up with me as I jump back and forth between all these stories for the rest of our message. So remember, the Pharisees and teachers of religious law are complaining. Um, I just thought of a connection with our sermon, uh, with, that, with that hymn. Uh, this whole idea of telling ourselves, putting God in his sovereign place and telling angels to lay flat on their faces in front of him and taking the crown and putting it on his head. Someday in the next world, as resurrected saints, we'll be at our very best and we won't resist giving up authority and rule to God one bit. (laughs) It, It won't be a struggle anymore. We won't have to tell each other to put ourselves in our proper place. We're not going to feel left out. We're not going to be worried about who else is there and how did they get here and why is he here. We'll just be praising God. We'll be at our best and we'll be naturally celebrating the greatness of God. These Pharisees aren't doing that yet. So Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he'll call together his friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me because I've found my lost sheep. In the same way... There is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Or, same point, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me, because I've found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. To illustrate this story further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So the father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. And I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, Look, dear son you have always stayed by me and everything i have is yours we had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life he was lost but now he is found so the lord is like a a waiting father who longs for his son to return he's like a shepherd who leaves his flock And goes out looking for his lost sheep. He's like a woman who won't rest till her missing coin is found. And remember that as Jesus tells these two stories, the Pharisees and the grumblers aren't the only ones hearing these stories. So are the people being grumbled about. They're probably hearing these stories as well in the the way that they're described. So it's tempting to jump on all three of these uh, parables and, you know, say, well, these are all about evangelism. These parables are all about evangelism. they one f- famous mega church movement um, that was just getting kicked off about 35 years ago when I was starting out in ministry. They, they've done just that. They, they based their whole philosophy of ministry on these three parables and said, this is all about, uh, this is all about uh, evangelism and, and uh, a philosophy that really had a huge, wide impact on evangelical churches everywhere. And the thinking kind of goes like this. So, so the lost sheep one, for instance, That's Jesus right there. And Jesus leaves all the flock behind, and he goes out there to find that one lost dumb sheep out there, and uh, he brings it back home. So that's our model for ministry. That reveals how a real pastor is just like the good shepherd. Well, there's plenty of good shepherd teaching, especially in the Gospel of John, that would be far better to talk about, uh, you know, your model for ministry and how Jesus went about doing things. The problem in these three parables that all go together is... You think about the father, pretty lousy pretty lousy uh, ministry plan there, because he didn't go and look for anything. He never even left the farm. He's just there waiting for the lost thing to find itself and come back. So so that's where you have to be careful with parables and, and not just kind of grasp on the low-hanging fruit and think that's what it's all about. Um, the lost things in the first two stories, they get found by an active pursuant, somebody's not going to give up till they find that lost thing. So, so what is it? Do we chase down? Do we sweep every square inch? Or do we sit back and wait? Well, I'd like you to ask you the story. What's the big deal in story number one? That story of the good shepherd. Take a look at it again in your Bibles. I think the big deal in that story is the joy that he's filled with when he finds that sheep. He joyfully tells his friends and neighbors. He wants them to rejoice with him. Um, The second story, what's the point? It's her joy. When she finds that coin, she's going to ask all of her friends to join and rejoice with her. She's going to throw a party that you can have for less than a coin. In verse 10, in the same way. In our parable, we have these two sons. Um, in, in those previous parables, we have this invitation to rejoice. And you heard that this parable is going to end in an invitation to rejoice as well, right? There's that picture where there's a, a father that's beaming and there's an older brother that's steaming. And the father invites that older brother. You, we must celebrate. You've got to come on in here and celebrate with us. The joy is a big deal. The joy is a big deal. So with that in mind, I want us to run through this third story primarily today and think about these different responses. And and they're really, all three of these stories are responses toward Jesus' unhappy critics for Jesus' jubilee way of doing ministry. This parable of the sons and the father is unique among all of Jesus' parables. It has a lot more dialogue, a lot more lines. That's probably why every drama ministry that ever started in Church history used this as one of their favorite scripts because it's just set up perfectly with three little acts and well-defined characters and great dialogue and your lines are, are read. All you got to do is stick some songs in here and you got a musical. But uh, it also has all kinds of really explicit details, and that's what's tricky about this one because those explicit details that are in the story that make it a great story they're like little shiny objects that kind of attract our attention. Before you know it, we're, we're lost in the weeds and we're making a bigger deal out of things that aren't really meant to be incredibly important to the story. Act 1 goes from verses 11 down to 16, and that's the act where the older son is really the primary guy. And the main story that's getting told there is all about degradation and fall and, like, hitting bottom, Uh, The word prodigal actually comes from the word for wasteful. Um, He's the wasteful son. He he was given so much, and he totally wasted it. Well, that's the original problem. That's the original problem of the Bible. If you go all the way back even into the first chapters of Genesis, which we do very often around here, because in 35 years of ministry, I've never really gotten to the bottom of how crucial those chapters are for understanding everything that you're going to be here later on. Uh, there's, there's seeds in those first two chapters that are, just keep growing through the rest of the Bible. And what is it about that one? Well, you'll, you'll read this description of God creating everything, and everything he creates is incredibly bountiful and fruitful, and, and something called seed-bearing is really important. You know, God's creating everything, and he doesn't just create this incredible stuff. He creates stuff that itself is able to flourish and reproduce and keep spreading and becoming more and more fruitful, and and it's just this incredible picture. And on the last creative day, he creates this pair, and they have seeds within them. They have the capability of offspring and reproducing and, and filling the earth with all kinds of goodness, and they're given a job, and you know what their job is? They're gardeners. And and a gardener can't make fruit trees reproduce, but what he does is he protects the environment that keeps all of that vegetation being fruitful. So that's our mandate, not to make fruitfulness happen, but just continue to work on the garden and protect the fruitfulness of all of the rest of the creation. But they waste that opportunity, don't they? They, they eat from this one tree that they're not allowed to eat, and they're, in a sense, saying, we want to control this fruitfulness cycle. We want to take things into our own hands. We think we can do better. And, what, and then everything that they're going to do, the curse that's given to them, everything they're going to do now, no matter how they try, they're going to keep reproducing death and cursedness. And so even the good things that are promised, there's that, remember that strange story where, the curse is given, and he, God's talking to Eve, and he says, through pain of childbirth, and everybody gets distracted by that and think, just like the 14 hours in the uh, birth and delivery room and all that pain, and that's the curse. No, it's like the whole process of the, what should be the joy and beauty of family life and reproducing children. We all know because we've experienced it. It's so joyful, but it's also so cursed, isn't it? And damaged and tricky, and it wasn't meant to be that and, and we'll see through the rest of the Bible how that's going to happen. Because God's plan is going to come from families reproducing in fruitfulness and fruitfulness and a whole chain of descendants of the promise. And they've got this fatal flaw inside of them. And, and so the curse keeps repeating. We see it in, in uh, the story of Noah. And God's going to do creation 2.0. He's going to do a reboot. So he does this in whole cleansing of creation. Noah comes out of the boat, he puts up a sacrifice, we've talked about this recently, it smells beautiful to God, and it's like, okay, everything's fixed. And then the first crops come in, Noah uses the fruit of the crops, he gets drunk, and the whole thing, it goes back into the same cycle again. And he only ends up, again, producing curse with the good blessing that God's given. They grasp for blessing, thinking they can control the fruitfulness, and it just continues to reproduce death. There's a story of Abraham, and he's still Abram at this time, and we hear of Abram going off to Egypt. That's usually a bad detour in the Old Testament, by the way. Heading toward Egypt's usually not a good thing, and uh, Abram is in Egypt, and he says to his beautiful wife on the way in, hey, while we're here out of town, don't tell anybody you're my wife, because they might kill me, because you're so beautiful, and they're going to want you, and they're going to kill me, so let's keep it on the down low. She ends up being taken into the Pharaoh's harem, and he's still lying. And uh, Abram should have known, because already by now, God's promise to bless the whole world through what? Through his seed. Abram shouldn't be afraid for his life. Because God, in his word, has already promised to use him. To bless all the world through him and his offspring. He's probably going to need his wife to do that, by the way. He's probably going to protect both of them. But he lies. He tries to manage the promise on his own. And Pharaoh, he gets cursed all this disease, and and God directly speaks to Pharaoh to protect Pharaoh from the curse that Abram, in his lying, has produced in his life. And God stops that mistake, and Pharaoh says, what are you doing telling me she's not your wife? You know, now your God told me I'm cursed because uh, there's this whole idea of just, it's a good thing, but it's being mismanaged, and you keep creating curse, and it just goes on and on through the Bible. Jacob's another story like that. Jacob given this incredible promise and then he spends the rest of his life grasping, manipulating, cheating, trying to protect the promise or bring the promise to pass that God's given him. Nobody in the world needed to be less manipulative and scheming than Jacob because he was the bearer of this great promise of fruitfulness for the whole earth. But he tries to do it on his own and just keeps creating so much curse while it goes on. So, So this son... Heading off and taking the inheritance and heading off, it's basically um, how to be cursed 101 course. It's the same old story. It's been going on forever. Rather than God's plan of blessing for him, which is honor your father and mother, he says, you know what? There's more for me somewhere, anywhere but here. There's more for me anywhere but here. That's what that son kind of comes to that conclusion. So, you know, deconstruction is not a new thing in our day and age. What he just asked his father for was audacious. What the, that the father would give him to hear is it was incredibly unusual. That he would waste it in wild living. It's pretty much the polar opposite of honoring your father. To take your father's hard-earned inheritance and use that in wild living. That's, that would be considered terrible that he winds up starving, that was a punishment that fit the crime, that uh, he begs for the definition of the dirtiest job a good God-loving Jew could imagine, feeding pigs, that's really good justice happening. When pig food looked good to him, that's absolute bottom. And we read this line, but no one gave him anything. I thought about that this week, and I'm like, hmm, someone gave him something. His father had given him everything. And he took everything, and now he's got nothing, and no one will give him anything. He got there by wasting and misusing what a loving father had given him, just like Adam and Eve, often just like Abram, Noah, Jacob, you name it, keeps going on and on. Now, a lot has been made about this line that when he came to his senses part of the story, You've heard me preach on this many times, and I always like to emphasize that he never really does get the chance to give his speech. He does give the speech, but by the time he gives his speech, he's already experienced this incredible, gracious, loving embrace before a word comes out of his mouth. And if you even look at the details, he gives his great speech, which we all love, and we kind of use it as this model of repentance, and and he gives the great speech, and what his father doesn't say, oh, well, in that case, if you feel like that, then come on. No. No. He gives the speech and it says, but the father said, kill the cat and calf, get him some new kicks, put that robe on his, give him a ring, we must celebrate he's been found. Before he even says a word. I love that. We also notice that his logic has holes. Because he is a son. He clearly hasn't seen his father for who his father really is. He should know that when he goes back home, he will be found. He will be found. He's, he's going to come in and try to get the job as a servant. He's not a servant. We're going to come back to that. He is a son. We've got a little time out here. Don't miss the details that this particular son had to leave home and go to a faraway place in order to be lost. Let me say that in a couple of different ways. He needed to put distance between his righteous father and himself in order to be able to live any way he might choose. Because we do catch and we're encouraged by the fact that this father is so gracious, but what we often miss is that the descriptive wild living, wild living wasn't really an option back at the farm. I never really thought about that until this last week. Um, This is a righteous, loving father. And Junior understood enough to know that wild living would have to happen somewhere else. He couldn't stay in the presence of his father and live riotously. Uh, One of my favorite Bible college professors has a new book out on the parables, and, and Doug Webster wrote this. In the parable, there's a profound sense of the distance between the presence of the father and the far country. He writes, but this is often not the case today. This is a killer line. Prodigal sons and daughters do as they please and still live at home. So this younger son's U-turn, that, that's actually repentance being shown here. He's coming back to the father. It, it would never dawn on dad that Junior was coming back in order to have expendable income needed for wild living. <laughs> hey dad, I'm out of money. Can I come back here and, and continue on in my wild living? Um, I had a friend... Uh, Many years ago, uh, when I was a young youth pastor, and uh, she was concerned because her uh, 19-year-old son um, was uh, cruising around northern Ontario going from one. They had these, these, like, shack bars all over on the snowmobile trails up there, and you could just go from one bar to another in your snowmobile, and I I used to joke that alcohol in snowmobiles is God's way of cleaning up the gene pool, but that's a bad joke. Anyhow... She was worried about that, and he's making payments on his snowmobile, and, he's, and she's worried about the drinking starting to become a problem for her son and all of this kind of stuff. And she already had examples in her own extended family where that was a problem for him and, and uh, all of that kind of stuff. And I knew already that he was really only earning a little bit over He's just starting out in work as a 19-year-old, you know. He's not getting paid a lot, making payments on the snowmobile, driving around from bar to bar. And I kind of said to Mom, I go, how much do you charge him for room and board? oh, I don't, I don't, we don't charge him anything at all. You know, that wouldn't be fair. He doesn't make him much money. Plus, we're worried, you know, if we did, he would just leave and move in with the drinking buddies in some shack somewhere, and we wouldn't be able to keep an eye on him. He just kind of floated in there. Well, have you ever thought maybe you're subsidizing the dangerous behavior that you're so worried about? I think that's what Dr. Webster was talking about in that quote. It, it's not easy, parents, sometimes. But sometimes they're gonna need to go away to do the riotous living out from under your roof. And I've met parents that... This, this, this young man's life didn't end in a, in a cautionary tale. You know, a lot of times a pastor, all you got to tell you how that just ruined him. He's a solid, um, upstanding dad and has a good relationship with his extended family. I can't read his heart. I still worry sometimes that he may be spiritually. He's still in a faraway place. I'm not sure. But it's a tough time. Then seeing... Um, Oh, let me, let me get back to our... They're talking about a rabbit trail. Let me get back to our uh, thing here. Um, act 2. So he returns home to his father. Un- unlike Abraham to Egypt, the turning for home, that's always a good move in the Bible. That's what repentance really is. Uh, It's not a fine-tuned speech or doctrinal statement, but a return to living under the roof of his father. When you're back under the roof, I've already hinted at, that's also back under his rule and his sovereignty and uh, his will and all of those things. They go hand in hand when he comes back. I know when we want our own way, we want that Frank Sinatra freedom to do it our way, we wander off. But then he tells himself, he decides it would be better he, he, he came to the conclusion that in my father's house are many rules. And you know what? There's more life out there. And once he was out there, he came to his senses and thought, in my father's house are many rules, but there's also many rooms. And he's not just coming back to a house either. Don't miss in the text. That he's coming back to his father. He's coming back to the joy of that relationship. Uh, I've already touched on the idea that the, uh, the embrace came before the apology speech. Look at the response. It's not after the son confesses his unworthiness that the father says, and, well, in that case, it says, but his father said to the servants. It's like his speech is in a completely different direction than the one the son's making. The son's trying to negotiate and, and come in low, and the father is coming back high with, with embrace and joy and sonship. Uh, there's also another set in this parable. And if if the youth group were going to act this one out for a future video, that would be a great idea. It was a super cool video they made, by the way. They would need other actors than just these three principal players. They would need servants. And the fact that we're kind of blind to the fact that it's just three people, and we forget there's this other subgroup in here, servants. And one of the problems You know, uh, Scripture means to give us our identity, help us understand who we really are as God's human beings. And the younger son wants to be a servant, and the older son's ticked off because he thinks he's being treated like one. But there are servants in this story, and neither of these are servants. They're both sons. They're both sons. That's their identity. And it's displayed here. He says... um, He says to them, quick, he says to the son, quick, clothes, jewelry, new shoes, fire up the barbecue, get a feast ready. We must, we must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. How's death defined here? It's like, wait a minute, he never died. He was just in a faraway place. We think of Adam and Eve and if you eat of this fruit, you're going to die and they didn't die. How's death defined here? Because the son's name isn't Lazarus. He wasn't a zombie walking back down the path, you know, living dead, and and he he comes back to life when the father embraces him. No, here's this idea that finding life away from God is death. That's that curse. It just creates death. It creates more and more death and suffering. How many times have we learned that in our lives, right? Turning homeward is life. All paths away from the father lead to lost. One path back to the father's house leads to found. So he basically says, let the party begin, and scene three kicks off. The party is on according to the word of the father. That's all his commands in act two. He's the one that starts the party, describes it, gets it rolling, and it's on. The party is on according to the commands of the father. Uh, There's a good little reminder here for all of us, even in the Old Testament, all the commands of God aren't don'ts. We tend to think of God's commands as all don'ts. God's command in Act 2 is start the party. And even in the Old Testament, there's some commands that are are pretty good dues, you know. There's a lot of festivals in there. There's uh, loan forgiveness programs, all kinds of things. All God's commands aren't don'ts. but now who's not honoring the father in Act 3? Who's not honoring his father now? It's the dutiful older son. He just can't get over it. He, it's like he's more concerned about the father's reputation as righteous and just than, he is about, than the father's worried about that reputation. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. Let me share some applications uh, I was taught this week in my study, uh, especially to a, a, a Bible scholar Named K.R. Snodgrass, another hard-to-pronounce name, not make it sound funny. Uh, from him, I got this idea of, of this whole idea of identity. Scripture reveals many things. It reveals God. It reveals God's plan. It reveals invisible realities in the spiritual world we wouldn't see otherwise, but it also reveals our identity, or at least it seeks to give us an identity. And, and we usually identify only with 66% of these three main characters, um, I know that because I've preached it in that way many times. And, uh, you know, we don't want to encourage riotous, wasteful living, so we remind ourselves by the bad example of the younger son, okay, don't go down that path. It just leads to curse and, and suffering and growing more until you hit rock bottom, and then you got to kind of come back with pig slop on your face. And, and, and you know, don't, don't be like that. Come back, repent. And God will take you back, but, but don't, you know, don't do the first part. The older brother, we kind of know, well, don't be the angry older brother and all self-righteous and not accepting people. And we kind of think we've applied it to ourselves. And we don't often think about our role as the father. Because in our minds, that's always reserved for God. Because we've assumed this is just God in the story. And we're just these other two lesser beings But I think there's a picture here of what godliness looks like. And I think we are to take some cues and some identity and some instruction on how we're to live from this Father. And that's the problem with those guys in the first two verses of chapter 15, isn't it? Um, We we don't quite feel right placing ourselves in the Father's role. It's too, too left only for God in our minds. But I think we get a real glimpse of what godliness looks like. We learn from this great story that humans aren't meant for the far country. It's not where anybody's supposed to live. Uh, But we also learn that people aren't meant to be either prodigals or slaves. They are children of the Father and belong with the Father. The prodigal declares that he's not worthy, and we, I think, too quickly take him at his word. He claims that all he can ask or imagine is a lesser role as a hired hand. But somewhere back in Scripture, it also tells us that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask and imagine. Here's a line from Dr. K.R. Snodgrass. He says, Grace lets you be who you're supposed to be, even though you don't deserve to or may even not want to. The older son is suspicious of joy, and he sees himself as getting the servant treatment. The father insists that he's a son as well. Side note, go back and read that third chapter, uh, that third act in the play later, and look at all the language used. That son of yours. And he says, your brother. He says, I, he never, and I always, he says, everything I have is yours, my son. The father refers to both of those characters as sons. That's their, that's their, uh identity but that contrast in attitude between the dad and the older son is so important in this paragraph one of the first purposes of this par- this whole parable is the unquestioning compassion the unquestioning love of the father a major feature of Jesus ministry and message remember that son doesn't just return home to the house he returns home to the father And we're meant to see the eagerness of joy that's caused by son recovery by this father. The parable is a narrative demonstration. Here's another quote. A narrative demonstration of the grace with which God reaches out to sinful people. And this isn't new information from Jesus either. Uh, what he was teaching here is that he was restoring Israel. That was a promise from way back in the Old Testament, God's people. He said, we learned last week in, in chapter 4, this is a time, the end time restoration and forgiveness being offered wide open. And this now is the crucial time for repentance. But it's being told in advance. So know your repentance will, will make something, will, will, be, will be received. The path is paved, the door's wide open. Not hiding behind, God's not hiding behind the cards here. Well, you know, remember in public school, remember elementary school romances? Um, You don't have any kids here so, you know, none of them are worried about thinking that that's an option. But, you know, in this playground that I grew up on, it's like her people would talk to your people. And they would say, you know, if you, if you ask her to go with you, I never knew where you were supposed to be going, but if you ask her to go with you, she'll say yes. And then they go and talk to your people, and then your people says, yeah, he's going to ask her to go with him. And then, then, you know, then the negotiation can be made, but I wonder what percentage of little boys ever actually have the guts to ask the question unless they don't know in advance that it's going to be a yes. Well, this is wide open in advance, yes. So if you think you're a sinner outside of the grace of God, and that you would never be expected. He's gone to great lengths to let you know. It's ready. The party's open. We're ready to celebrate anybody that comes back. Matt talked about the incredible invitation just last Friday night to our children, and and to the young people. And they weren't just told that this invitation's available, but this invitation's available for you to hand out to people as well and tell them it's, it's set. He said he'll go with you if you'll ask him. It's ready. It's available. But there's this inability of the older son to catch the spirit of his father. It's seen in that language of never and always used in their conversation. He he feels like if he can embrace, if he embraces what his father embraces, he somehow thinks that's going to be a loss for himself. Do you see where that curse twists us? We think that the real fruit is a loss. So we hang on to the cursed, rotten fruit uh, because we're afraid to settle for the real fruit. We think we'll be losing something if we join in on the joy of the father. It's incredible. It leads to uh, um, a a second purpose. Matt spoke about that, about the invitation, um, and it's explicit. If you look at verses 23 to 24 and verse 34, it's we must, we must, we must. There's another command of God. The commands aren't all negatives. We must celebrate. Our church should be a, a, a celebrating community. Basically, God's giving a party. Are you coming? He's saying to the older brother. The forgiveness enacted with Jesus' proclamation of Jubilee must be celebrated. It's also a defense of Jesus' association with sinners. Because if Jesus accepts such people, not just generally, not just theoretically, but actually specifically, because the kingdom was coming, if Jesus eating with these sinners enacts God's forgiveness and mercy then the complaints about his actions are deeply misguided and out of touch with what God is doing. But it's much more than just a defense of Jesus hanging out with and embracing and welcoming sinners. He wrote this. This is another direct quote now. The parable, especially with its incomplete ending, functions as an invitation for the hearers to take the same attitude toward sinners as the father toward the prodigal. The change of attitude carries with it a missional force so that one is motivated not only to accept sinners, but also to find them. Last words today. How do we find ourselves offside from this parable? How do we fail when it comes to applying this parable? Again, we usually kind of work through the checklist and it's like, okay, haven't, haven't blown the family inheritance and riotous living, or, or I did once, but I repented and came back, so I can check that box. I haven't been, you know, overly angry or self-righteous about other people and their conversion stories, so I'm, I'm good on that one. I think we fail on this one. The temptation more for us in our congregation is to, we find ourselves on the wrong side of this parable. Um is probably a shoulder shrug. And oh well. What are you going to do attitude about the fact that there are lost people out there? That's that's where I find myself offside on this one. Because if God is that excited, if it brings him that much joy, uh, how does he feel when lost people aren't being found? If the joy of the Lord is our strength, I said last week, well, how do we know what really brings him joy? Because I would love to experience God's strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. God's joy is when lost people are found. Enter that joy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would continue to grow in us a desire and an appetite for the things that bring you great joy. Forgive us for the times when we uh, get sidetracked and focused on um, sin management programs as if that's the thing that brings you great joy. When we start identifying uh, our holiness by what we don't do. Lord, you've revealed to us in these beautiful stories from your son, that it brings you great joy when people that don't know about salvation in Christ and his kingdom are found. Lord, they have to know where home is for them to turn and come back to the Father. So I pray that you would continue to grow us, help us, break us from our complacency, and help us to enter into your joy as a church family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. For more information, please visit brooklynrbc.ca. The link is also in our bio. On behalf of the Renaissance Baptist Church of Brooklyn, we pray you have a blessed week.